Founders, welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. All right, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm joined by the CEO of Waymark, Nathan LeBenz. Waymark is the world's first input-free automated marketing platform for local businesses with the goal of making cutting-edge marketing available to every business in the world. Nathan attended Harvard University from 2002 to 2006, and after graduating, he co-founded Stick.com. This eventually led him to also founding Social Proof Marketing in 2014. Continuing his career, he took on the role of CEO at Waymark. Nathan has been the Waymark CEO for the past five years. We are pumped to have such a creative and entrepreneurial-minded guest. So, Nathan, my friend, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Drew. Excited to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. Yeah. So, from what I can tell, Waymark had a little bit of an interesting start, uh, maybe even uh, launched from the other business, if, if I'm not mistaken. But I'll just ask you, how, how did Waymark come to be? Yeah. Well, it's a, a bit of a long story, so I'll try to tell the short version. But yeah, the three brands that you mentioned uh, in your introduction, Stick.com, Social Proof, and Waymark really are all the same company um, and really have a lot of the same key people. So there's a lot of continuity across those three experiences. Uh, you know, again, long story, I'll try to tell it uh, briefly. Stick.com was the original uh, concept that we founded the business on and the the kind of first product that we launched and also the, you know, the, the concept that was behind our initial fundraising. Okay. And that concept was born out of a couple of different formative experiences that I had had. One uh, was that in college, I happened to be in the same dorm as four of the five guys that started Facebook, uh, which was Kirkland House uh, on uh, Harvard College campus uh, back in 2004. So, wow. you know, I would not claim uh, visionary insight at that time because, you know, if you've seen the uh, social network movie, right, there's the scene where they send out the first email about the Facebook, right? And uh, somebody asks, the, you know, the guy that plays Zuckerberg, like, who'd you send it to? And he says, well, that doesn't matter. What matters is who they send it to. And yes. seeing that scene, I was like, I was one of the people that they sent it to. I got, you know, somebody forwarded me that email saying that, you know, Mark is launching this site and it's going to be, the, they, I remember the email very specifically, even though, you know, all the email has been deleted since then, but they said, this will definitely be in the Crimson tomorrow, which is the student newspaper. So I was like, okay, yeah, who cares? I don't really, you know, that's not for me was kind of yeah. my initial reaction, uh, but obviously it blew up, you know, and, and the rest of that story, everybody knows, but seeing, you know, those guys who were 19, 20 years old, amateurs, you know, I mean, they were, they were computer science majors, but they were undergrads, right? This was not um, something that people were doing, you know, with uh, PhDs to their name. It was really kind of a, a new space that they had found and, and opened up. And it was a place where like, you could be very young, you could be kind of amateurish, you know, but if you had mm. good ideas, you could make them happen. So that was a real inspiration. Um, and I, you know, I had that kind of front row seat, but then I did initially, immediately after college, I did what most of the undergrads were doing at that time, which is I got a job in management consulting. And at the time that was like one of, it was either law school 
investment banking or management consulting. Those were like the three <laughs> most common things. I think like literally half of the Harvard Whoa. class was going into those areas, uh, which in retrospect, you know, seems crazy, but this was like, the, you know, the time of uh, what we now call the mortgage bubble, but then we called it the great moderation, right? So everybody thought that all this uh, stuff was, you know, had the answers. So I had this job uh, for a year and it was specifically in the mortgage space. I worked on a few different projects for a few different clients, um, but it was all kind of mortgage related. And, you know, what I took away from that were a few different things, but one of the biggest things was I learned through ghost shopping because I was the, you know, the low man on the totem pole, right? So they give me the tasks that other people didn't really want to do. One of those was ghost shopping mortgage companies. I've so I was heard of that. So ghost shopping in general is like, you know, just going and pretending to be a customer when you're really looking for insight. Um, and there's, you know, firms that do it and stuff, but just it's kind of one of the tools in the consultant toolkit to try to get a handle on a market that, you know, certainly even at the time, everybody was like aware that the mortgage market was doing some strange things. There was debate as to whether it was problematic or not. Some people were starting to say it might be. Others were like, no, it's going to be fine. Um, so, you know, what's out there? So I was asked to call some mortgage shops and kind of say, you know, hey, I'm Nathan, you know, tell different stories, um, made up, you know, personas um, and just kind of see what they would say to me. And I was amazed that they were basically prepared to do anything to get me into a loan, um, no matter what downstream consequences, you know, they seem wow. to be setting me up for. So specifically, I remember this one call that I had where, you know, I, I put it on pretty thick, you know, like, oh, I, I lost my job. I can't make my payments on my mortgage. You know, can you help me out? Totally. You know, this is not going to be a problem, right? So uh, we're going to get you into a 228. Oh, well, what's that? You know, oh, well, that's a mortgage where for the first two years, your interest rate is fixed. And then after that, it can, it, it can adjust. But uh, so I'm like, well, you know, well, wait, well, what happens then? <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that turned out, of course, to be a big deal. Right. But the answer that I got was, well, you don't really worry about that. You know, at that point, you'll probably just refinance anyway. So you can just, you know, kind of roll it over into another mortgage and then everything will be fine. Don't look at the other 28 years, you know, of, of this yeah. mortgage that you're signing. So I knew better than that. Like I knew that, you know, what was really going to happen is the payment was going to balloon because the interest rate was going to adjust and the teaser rate, you know, was maybe I could refinance it, but you know, at some point, obviously the music stopped and a lot of people hit this thing where all of a sudden their mortgage payment, you know, grew by 50% or more and, you know, they can't afford that. So when it finally blew up, I was kind of like, man, we, all the signs were there for this and there was rot in different aspects of the value chain. It was not just at the retail level by any means that there were problems. Uh, but I kind of said, man, it's crazy. This was like 2009. It's crazy that you can go online, go on Yelp and read a ton of reviews about, you know, every restaurant in town um, and a few other kinds of things, but it was largely restaurants, but you cannot find any trusted resource for something as important to your financial future as getting a mortgage. Mm. At the time, there was all sorts of just kind of forms to fill out, you know, get a quote, whatever lead gen type of activities. But it was all perverse in the sense that 
as soon as you did that search on Google, you're being auctioned off to the highest bidder. And the fact you're being auctioned off to the highest bidder means that to compete in the auction in the first place, you have to be the best at extracting value from the customer, right? So like, not only was it kind of, it was worse than just being kind of like a neutral, you know, um, auction style system. The dynamics of the auction dictated that the people that could pay the most to talk to somebody searching in the first place were the ones that extracted the most value, right? So it's like, they're directly incentivized to take you for all your worth. And really it's like a survival of the fittest competition. This still exists in some, you know, verticals within Google, right? Like the people that get to the top are the ones that can extract the most value from you. So mm. anyway, we could talk about that at, at some length. I think that that's like a big I've um, never heard of that. problem with digital marketing kind of in general. Um, the, you know, the auction dynamic, just to, in short, the auction dynamic creates a situation where consumers see the businesses that can extract the most value from them, as opposed to the businesses that may deliver the most value for money, because those businesses can't afford to be at the top of, uh, of the power rankings in, you know, in paid advertising. So how do you, how does it, how do you even measure that measure who's able to extract the most value from a customer? Well, you don't necessarily have to measure it. You just, if you're Google, you know, if you're Facebook, um, you're just doing it by bid, right? I mean, who's willing to pay a certain amount okay. per click? Um, you know, it's you could complicate my analysis a bit, um, but only so much. I mean, in general, you know, if you're going to pay mortgage clicks, go even back in the day, uh, you know, it was fifty bucks a click for certain search terms, or you know, some more than that, right? For a search term that was indicative of high intent to get a mortgage. So, you know, you got to convert, you got to make your margin yeah, to make it worth to it, be yeah. able to pay those kinds of clicks. Um, so, you know, some, some deeply perverse incentives that I kind of experienced as this ghost shopper, right? So I'm not doing a good job of being brief. I'm already off the, off the rails on that, but good. what I set out to do initially was create a different kind of system that had different kind of incentives. And we just started with a real simple observation, which is like, if I was going to go get a mortgage right now, what would I do? And the very first thing I would do would have been, and still probably would be today, call my dad and ask him if he has anyone he recommends. Because my dad has been through all this stuff before, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you get that referral and you talk to people in these businesses too. And they're like, well, the best business comes by referral. You know, if you can get word of mouth going, that's the holy grail in any of these kinds of businesses. If you have to be doing that, you know, you can supplement, you can grow your business with paid advertising, but word of mouth is what you really want. So we set out basically to create that. We had kind of Facebook, you know, blowing up and bringing all these different social interactions online. We had, oh my God, you know, the incentives are way wrong, not just in mortgage, but in, you know, a number of kind of different related things where we came to call them trust-based businesses, where the idea is like, if you... You know, I, I broke it. You could break the world down in a lot of ways, of course, but I would break it down into, uh, for this purpose, taste, skill, and trust. Where taste is like, you know, as soon as you put that bite of food in your mouth, you're going to get the taste and you're going to have a sense for like whether it's the taste you like or not, right? But you got that immediate kind of uh, experiential understanding of the quality of what you're getting. Skill can be a little bit harder to understand. You know, you may not really be able to differentiate between somebody who like does a good job fixing your car or not. But, you know, if they don't and it breaks again, you'll see it sooner rather than later. And you can probably have a pretty direct sense of feedback on that. 
Uh, and you're going to have to go somewhere else to get it fixed, right? You probably would go somewhere else. So you have that kind of at least second at that, even if it sucks, you know, to get a bad job done on the car. But the trust thing in mortgage is like, you really don't have that many at bats at this. It's really costly if somebody takes you for a ride. And at the end of the day, most people are not able to really understand the complexity of things like a mortgage or an insurance policy or sure. you know a real estate contract or what have you. So they're really just looking across the proverbial table at someone and saying like, I guess I'm going to put my trust and you know future to a significant degree into this person's hands. And I hope that they are going to, you know, do the right thing by me. Um, so we tried to create a dynamic, you know, where that could happen, right? We, we created this website, stick.com. The, the original slogan was stick to who you know. And the concept was you can source these kinds of low frequency, but high stakes trust-based professionals through your network, you know, and you can do it at a much more kind of much higher scale and much faster if all of that information is digitized and represented in the social graph. Um, so we kind of created, you know, a social search engine, which hmm. was one of the one of the first of its kind. I mean, there were there were other people, of course, you know, exploring that space at the same time too. But our goal was to create a, an experience where you could say, "Here's what I need," and then get results of people who could help you with that, but also how you're connected to them. Is that do you have a friend that already you know used that person for that need, or do you have somebody that maybe just even knows them socially, but you know you get a referral from a friend you take a little extra care, you know, with sure. that person. Right. So trying to create a, an incentive for like long-term reputation building, you know, I'm, I'm going to make sure you send me somebody, I'm going to do a good job for that person. Cause I want you to send me more people. Right. And if I don't, I lose out on that. So it's fairly basic uh, concepts, but you know, we tried to bring it online and um, you know, that, that was a wild west kind of period of the internet. Certainly, you know, it was all kinds of, um, everything was going viral and the kind of quest was to figure out how to go viral. We did create some successful viral loops that largely kind of started off with just different professionals recommending and kind of mutually endorsing one another. And, you know, that was enough to kind of get the network growing, get the content uh, growing. And we did, you know, we got some real traction with that. People kind of saw that like, hey, this makes sense, you know. I'd rather, I would rather get word of mouth type business and the customers, you know, prefer it. Um, I don't want to be, you know, paying 50 bucks a click, you know, to then be in some kind of race to, you know, follow up on leads or whatever. So everybody kind of liked the vision and we did make some real progress. We got a, a pretty good, you know, base of like a hundred thousand professionals signed up and, and kind of wow. using it to collect content. Um, I think we had like 2 million, um, you know, individual level recommend recommendations. And we're able to raise some capital on that kind of initial traction. Um, but then the whole thing went totally sideways because we didn't, and we did not know why at the time, um, but Facebook announced rather kind of quietly that they were going to real, not totally discontinue, but functionally discontinue access to social graph connection information um, for third-party application developers like ourselves. So it, we went from a world where you could sign into an app, bring all your friends with you. We could mash up the data that we had against the data that you brought and start to create you know, personalized recommendations for you. Now to a world where when you sign in with Facebook, they don't really tell the applications very much. And Interesting. that actually, we, we later learned 
um, that the reason they did that at the time that they did was they were aware of a whole bunch of different, you know, pieces of, you know, different applications um, and, and different sort of patterns of abuse that had developed on the platform. So Cambridge Analytica, in short, is what people, you know, think of now. Yeah. Um, and that was kind of a similar deal, right? It was like, oh, you're going to just sign up for an app. You, you log in and some information is given and it'll tell you things. Um, and they had obviously, you know, totally subterranean, uh, you know, purposes behind that, that, uh, you know, Facebook kind of ultimately found like, we just can't live with that risk, right? As they were on their way to becoming a trillion dollar company that they are today, they went from thinking, you know, we need to be open and that'll make everything better to like, oh my God, this openness, you know, it, yeah, of course it has some, some great upside and huge potential that people right. could build great things, but they could also not just, you know, uh, build some bad things, but they could also like really harm our reputation as Facebook in the process. And, you know, so we got to kind of shut that down. So that, um, I mean, man, talk about not being brief, but that's kind of all prelude to, you know, what for us in company history is kind of the, um, you know, the big pivot, right? We, we were there Huge. with like, really the founding idea, right, was not going to work. Um, I spent some time just trying to figure out, was there any other data source that we could use for this? You know, like, could we flip it over to LinkedIn? Well, no, LinkedIn actually never, never went the way Facebook did. They never opened up the social graph like Facebook did. Could we use Twitter? Nah, not really. Those people don't even really know each other. You know, you yeah. follow people on Twitter, <laughs> but I can't really, you know, just because I follow somebody on Twitter doesn't mean, you know, that I even know who they are, let alone, you know, that we could recommend like real estate agents to each other, or whatever. So none of the other social graphs were quite suitable. And, you know, there really is no other data set that's comparable to, you know, what the big social graphs have. So we kind of concluded that like, we just can't really do this thing. You know, we can't really make these personalized recommendations because um, we just don't know who you know, you know, and, then, and that, that's a fundamental link in the, in the whole value chain there. So we kind of then um, were like, well, shit, you know, <laughs> what, what do we do? Um, How long had you guys been at it at this point? Uh, this was like, it was kind of a slow, bit of a slow moving thing because they made this announcement uh, and they kind of buried it in a bunch of other changes that they announced. They packaged it up. This was kind of classic, like Facebook PR, right? We've got all these great new things for developers and also some changes to what we currently have. And the changes turned out in retrospect to be some of the most profound things. Like, you know, you're not going to see who people are friends with anymore. So they kind of announced it. It was initially kind of weird. It was like, that's such a major change. Why are they burying it in, you know, like right. a footnote? There was also like a time lag. They kind of announced it, but it was going to go into effect a bit later. So it was kind of 2014, 15 uh, was the time that, this all happened at that point. We've been working on the business for like, you know, a few years and raised a series, you know, whatever, all the series are kind of silly, uh, but we'd, we'd raised a tiny bit of seed capital and we'd raised kind of our, our first like real round of like a couple million dollars. Um, and, you know, we had a little bit money, a little bit of money left in the bank. Um, I don't even remember exactly what at this point, but, you know, certainly not enough to just like, uh, coast on for a long time. I got different advice, you know, from different people. I think if we had been in San Francisco at that time, we probably just would have folded, you know, because that's kind of how things go, you know, there more than here in Detroit. 
um, we're not as quick to celebrate failure in Detroit. <laughs> and um, especially going back, you know, 2014, 15 timeframe, there weren't that many startups here in Detroit. There certainly, you know, were some, and not to say there were none, but, you know, fewer than there are today by far and, and way, way fewer than, you know, in, in the major tech hubs. So from just like a team standpoint, people were kind of like into the idea of, you know, building a startup and not keen to, you know, be like, okay, this failed, move on to the next thing. Especially because if they did want to go, you know, to another startup, they might, that might involve like moving thousands of miles or something. So we kind of challenged ourselves to just figure out, like, is there any way for us to rally? Um, you know, we didn't have a lot of time, but we did have, you know, certainly a sense of urgency. So we came to like a real simple idea at first, which was just, we have all these professionals, you know, small businesses signed up on our site. And we have a lot of content for them that they're quite proud of. We had started to get a lot of requests and we started to build, you know, to kind of answer the requests of like, how can I make this content work harder for me, right? It's on my stick.com profile, but, you know, not everybody goes there, of course, right? We were never a household name. Um, how can I show this off on my own website? How can I show this off in more different ways? Mm. So we had started to kind of build, you know, stuff that again, like in retrospect, it seems pretty obvious then it was a little bit more, um, you know, creative to say like, oh, we'll make a widget where you can put it on your website. We'll make like an email signature tool where you can you know, start to put a random review in your email every time you send an email, you know, stuff that again, people are more familiar with these days. Um, but it was definitely indicative of a desire from our users to make the content work harder, you know, get more people to see it. Uh, so at the same time, the Facebook advertising platform was blowing up, you know, that, that was kind of clear where the energy was moving. It, it had been kind of a wild west, you know, everybody build your apps, you know, everything goes viral. Then it was kind of clearly getting tightened down to, if you want to grow a business on this platform, you're going to have to do it through advertising. And that's how they're going to make all their money. Um, so big businesses were really starting to rush into that and having a lot of success, small businesses you know, it was kind of beyond, it was still too complicated. Again, it sounds kind of funny to say, you know, a few years later, but we had a lot of small businesses that were like, I can't, couldn't possibly figure out how to run an ad on Facebook. So we started off just with an experiment. What if we took these reviews that we had, you know, 2 million of in the database and tried to just turn them into a marketing asset and then offer to help people push that out there as a paid ad? Hmm. And we, I mean, you know, truly kind of crazy uh, in retrospect, we gave ourselves two weeks from the time that we were like clear on, we got to do something different to the time that we launched this new product. And I said to everybody, all right, the first thing, because we needed revenue too, right? We did not have the luxury of, you know, there was certainly not going to be any more investor capital until we like figured something out. So what little precious, you know, money in the bank we had, we needed to stretch it as far as we could. So I, I said, all right, the first thing we're going to build is credit card acceptance. And then we're going to build in front of that a way to pitch to our users. Here's what you could look like in a Facebook ad. You know, if you want it, buy it, and then we'll do it for you. And so that all started off with basically like vaporware. You know, we, we focused on the design. We focused on 
help, you know, making the reviews look really good, like getting their profile picture, you know, in the review into, you know, a design that, um, you know, that they would hopefully feel like, yeah, this is something I want people to see. This is something I would actually pay for people to see. Uh, and, you know, we had no infrastructure. We had no, um, we had really no fulfillment plan, <laughs> uh, to be honest with you. The, um, if you've uh, studied the, the classic film, The Three Amigos, in the way that I have, but uh, <laughs> I always think of this scene where they break into El Guapo's fortress. This is a favorite movie of my brother and, and me and my dad when we were kids. I love kids. that movie. Uh, so they break into El Guapo's fortress, and the woman says to him, you know, what's your plan? And he says, well, first we break into El Guapo's fortress. And she <laughs> says, and that you've done. Now what? And he says... Well, to be honest, we really didn't expect the first part of the plan to work, so we have no further plan. <laughs> and that was that was kind of us, where we we said like, let's mock this thing up. We'll market it first, see if anybody wants to buy it, and then we'll kind of deal with the fallout of that. And it turned out to be something that people really did want to buy. Like there was just consciousness out there that Facebook advertising is blowing up. Um, but how in the hell, you know, am I going to do it as a small business, right. you know, too complicated, can't figure that out. Um, there was also partly just because of the kind of users we had attracted a real sense of like a really good thing for me to get out there would be testimonials and, you know, positive reviews about my business. So people really bought into that, um, within under four months, we had ramped up to a thousand paying customers and, it was like, you know, a total whirlwind of chaos. You know, we, we, um, we didn't have any infrastructure to fulfill all that stuff. So, and then some, so, some of the most obvious things, you know, we were not prepared for. So how do you just, how do you run all those campaigns? We had a guy who would, who did it basically all. Uh, I'm <laughs> for still a thousand indebted people? To this. Yeah, to the best of his ability. Wow. Um, it involved, you know, to, to just take, uh, to get an ad running in the first place, again, we had no infrastructure, right? So we had mocked up an HTML design for the person. It was not even something they could edit or change. It was just like, this is your ad. If you want to run it, pay. Okay, then they'd pay. We would then go to that page that we had sent them, take a screenshot of the mock-up, and that would then become the ad. So in a sense, <laughs> it was like, you know, whether that's like the most real thing or the or the most fake thing, you know, uh, listeners can be the judge, right? But we did not, we had no, no machinery, but on the plus side, like what you saw was exactly what went live. Cause we took a screenshot of it and, you know, and that was the <laughs> thing that got shoveled into Facebook. So then we're running into all kinds of mistakes. Like, you know, it's Facebook advertising was genuinely very complicated. Like some of these customers, you know, we would charge them a certain amount. Part of what we tried to do is like create price stability so idea was like, we'd promise you a certain amount of impressions at a certain price. And then it would be on us to like deliver that. And, you know, we'd kind of essentially like arbitrage the difference in what we charged you versus what it cost. There's a fundamental flaw in that model, by the way, which is that, you know, our incentives and the customer's incentives are not well aligned. So we ended up kind of circling back and needing to change that. Um, but that was the first thing that we went with for simplicity. But then we'd sometimes find like, oh, well, this particular customer it actually is going to cost us twice as much to deliver what we promised versus, you know, what we priced it at because we priced it just flat, you know, everywhere without respect to geography or targeting or anything. 
Um, so we'd have some customers where we'd be making like a healthy margin. We'd have some customers where we're spending twice what we, you know, took in. We'd have, then we started to have like credit card declines, something I never really thought a ton about because our product had been basically free up until that point. So, you know, what happens when somebody's credit card, they sign up for this like monthly thing and then doesn't run the next month. We had no mechanism to catch that either, right? So we were just like <laughs> continuing to, like two months in, we look back and we're like, oh, you know what's happened? That's kind of important. Like 15% of people's credit cards didn't bill again. And we've just been running the ads for them, you know? So we just find all these things that were kind of totally crazy. Um, and, you know, gradually kind of dug ourselves out from that infrastructure hole uh, or operational hole, you know, that we had dug for ourselves. The good news is we had demonstrated that people wanted something, you know, and yeah. we were able to kind of sell something and bring in some revenue. Um, but, you know, we had all, we had created a lot of work for ourselves. So I look back on that period, like super fondly in one sense, because we were really kind of up against the ropes and, you know, we, we punched our way out of it. Uh, and then I also look back on it with some like, man, what was I thinking? Cause I yeah, sure. you know, really just kind of left uh, before I looked and um, you know, we, we hit, uh, hit a few branches on the way down uh, to say the least. So, so how close is what that is to what it turned out to be? I mean, are we still several iterations yeah. away from, well, we're getting there. So I guess, you know, and again, you can uh, maybe edit the, the backstory and condense a little no, this bit. Is fascinating. The, the next turn is, is relatively simple, which is really kind of twofold. One, um, we heard, I guess maybe three, three more kind of relevant iterations, but they're all like pretty logical. One was customers started to say, you know, it's cool that you can set up this banner ad, but you know, Facebook has video advertising now. Could you help me with a video? We just started to hear that a lot. Two was actually just running advertising on Facebook was getting much, much easier. Their algorithm and optimization was getting much, much better. And so where there was value in the early days of like, we can help you target, we can do things, you know, the right way, you're not gonna be able to figure out on your own. That kind of became very thin. Like it was, it became easy enough, you know, and then Facebook yeah. can help you with the optimization well enough that there's not, you know, anybody out there today who tells you that they're gonna sell you, you know, super fancy Facebook targeting, don't listen to them. You know, that, that, that's almost always bullshit because the, the platform itself does a really good job of that. So those two things kind of led us to say, okay, well, it's clear that people need help with video. We were kind of getting pretty good at the creative side. You know, we had elaborated from, you know, from that initial screenshot thing quite a bit, um, but it became clear, like if we're gonna be leading with creative and if that's gonna be the primary driver of value, then we gotta up our game. So, you know, I kind of thought of it as moving from helping people make one frame to helping them make 30 frames a second for, you know, whatever, 15 or 30 seconds, whatever their, their video ultimately is. Um, and, you know, that, that all just kind of made sense. Uh, and then the final thing that has happened is we've gotten some really interesting inbound interest from some big companies. You know, we definitely launched with small business. Um, you know, there's a big part of me that I think will always be like a small business product person. Um, but we started to get some inbound interest from some bigger companies where they said like, you know, the product looks awesome. It's simple to use. You know, that's all really good. Um, we think it could be a fit for our organization. And so we started to do some work with media companies as well. Um, 
Spectrum Reach was the first big media company that kind of saw the potential in uh, what we were doing to help them. And they're, you know, big public facing uh, customer of ours now. And um, Ford Motor Company, which is a hometown company, also kind of saw in our, our platform something that they thought could really help their dealers as well. So that has taken us toward a bit more of um, an enterprise customer as well as the, the small business customer. And actually the fastest yeah. growing part of our business more recently, especially since the pandemic, has been the enterprise side. Um, as of you know March of uh, 2020, I think much like you, you know, we were kind of like, I don't think we're going to be able to sell a lot of stuff to small businesses right now. Right, right. Uh, so we kind of, we didn't get out of that game. On the contrary, we just actually, for a while, we made the product free for any and all small business to use. You know, I thought we might go out of business. So I was kind of like, well, let's, if, if that's what's going to happen, you know, let's uh, see if we can't help some other businesses, you know, survive yeah. the pandemic. Um, that did kind of work. And it actually kind of paid back in a way because, you know, initially it was just wide open free. And then we we're like, all right, let's make it, you know, sort of free. But if you want to use a lot, then we'll, you know, ask you to buy our normal subscription. And we got enough traffic to the site that our small business line, you know, didn't suffer nearly as much as I thought it would. Um, and then fortunately, some of the bigger customers also um, kind of, you know, found that they needed us more. There was a real, you know, for media companies, there was a time, I'll never forget talking, in, and this is not a huge media company, and I, I don't think they're a public facing customer, but just suffice it to say, like, a, you know, a smaller uh, cable company that we had, you know, had, we got pretty close to ready to do a deal with. And then the pandemic hit and we were on the phone with this guy and he's like, guys, you know, I love your product. I think it can help us, um, you know, and they, they use it to make commercials for businesses, you know, and help sell advertising. I think it can help us, but, you know, right now everything is just going totally haywire, right? Like the NBA just canceled their season, you know, the right. March Madness is canceled. He's like, my customers right now are calling me and asking for their money back. So I can't really do anything new. Um, and it was only a few days later. That was probably, you know, I don't know, March uh, 15th, let's say of, of 2020, maybe a week later, he called us back again. He said, Hey, uh, it turns out I was totally wrong. The only way we're going to keep a lot of the revenue that we have is if we can help our customers change their messaging. We've got a lot of customers who are, you know, we're, we're cutting deals, we're giving them discounts, you know, we're giving them extra, we're doing all kinds, sure. we're pulling every lever we have. But the one thing that is becoming a requirement for a lot of them is they don't want to run the old commercial that they were going to run because they feel now that it's just not appropriate. So they need new stuff. And on top of that, we can't send our film crews out anymore. So we need a software-based solution. And he's like, so, you know, turns out actually I was wrong. Like, this is exactly what we need to do <laughs> <laughs> new right now. Yeah. Um, and so our 2020 was kind of a, you know, it was a, a wild ride where you see the pandemic coming, you know, like a giant wave off in the distance. And you're like, is this thing going to hit us? And then it becomes clear, like, yeah, it's going to hit us. And it's like, it might sink us. And then, you know, it's kind of like, actually, it kind of, you know, hurt us, but it also in, in some ways helped us. And, you know, at, at least I think it was, if I could go back and undo the pandemic, just specifically focusing on Waymark's business, I would still, you know, much rather have done the non-pandemic uh, sure. 2020 version. Uh, again, you know, purely focusing on Waymark opportunity. Obviously, the the toll on the world has been terrible, but um 
But, you know, there was enough silver lining in some of these folks who realized that they kind of needed us worse than they thought, that it at least was enough to kind of sustain us through that year. So, yeah, that brings us uh, all the way to present. And, you know, the 2021 so far, fortunately, has been relatively boring by comparison, you know, as, as things have kind of eased or hopefully, you know, rounded back toward normal, uh, then we've gotten back into, you know, a growth trajectory that, uh, and of course, we would always want to be growing faster, but uh, we have been able to operate profitably for the last like year and a half and um, grow the business like 50% um, so far this year. So, wow. you know, that's, that's good. We're always, again, we set out to uh, double the business this year, and I don't think we're quite going to achieve that, but um, we certainly have made some good progress and, you know, feel like uh, hopefully, you know, all these crazy chapters that I've regaled you with, uh, will fade into the background and we'll be able to kind of operate and, and grow in a more uh, predictable fashion going forward. But, you know, something tells me that, uh, you know, there's probably still one more crazy thing <laughs> in our future, at least, because, uh, you know, certainly we've seen enough to uh, actually, we made it a core value of the company, take nothing for granted, um, mm. due in part to some of the, <laughs> some of the crazy, uh, you know, twists and turns that we've experienced. Oh man. I mean, in many ways, business is no different than life. You know, life lived is, is full of twists and turns. It's full of the unexpected. And every business that survives goes through the same thing. The only difference is some businesses don't survive the the wave that hits or the, you know, the, the need for pivoting. And others like yourself can keep finding, you know, where the opportunity is and how to adjust to it. I love the build first and, you know, figure out what to do later. That's a beautiful part of the story. Um what I'm not clear on, and that's probably on my end because I'm just not as, you know, I don't know as much about this type of business, but how does the software work? Like, what is the difference between what you guys are doing with marketing and uh, telling a story or video versus maybe a traditional digital marketing agency or something? Yeah, so our product, honestly, I, I would say, you know, not to get uh, too pluggy here, but I would say the, the best way to understand it is to go to the website and try it out. So it's okay. waymark.com. Uh, you can try the product without having to, you know, put a credit card in or anything. Obviously, at some point, we'll, we'll ask you to pay, but um, you can certainly get a good feel for the functionality. We don't hold anything back uh, to, you know, to, to free users just trying it out. So, you know, it's, it's sometimes been compared to like Squarespace for video. Mm. And basically what that means is we're trying to create a really simple software tool that hopefully anyone can use. Uh, we describe it also as anyone can edit video. And we say anyone can edit, you know, which sometimes brings a little funny people, you know, so anyone can edit. Yeah. We say anyone can edit as opposed to anyone can create because we really view video as such an advanced and such a rich form of communication that I think no matter how simple you make the interface, it's just not realistic to say anyone can create quality video. And we see so we're so inundated with video content, you know, whether it's in the Facebook feed or Instagram or, you know, TikTok or TV or OTT or you know, whatever, right? It's everywhere around us all the time. So people are very quick to assess the quality of a piece of video content. And Facebook would tell you that like, basically it's sub two seconds is what you have to either kind of 
capture someone's attention and convince them that it's worth paying attention or they're already gone, right? They're just mm. scrolling by so fast. The watch curves, the retention curves on video is like, it's a steep drop out of the gate because, you know, again, people are just so, they're so quick to, to understand yeah. in, a, in a flash what they're interested in and what they're not. So the bar is really high. We have a professional team of creators and a, and a network of creators that we work with that produce quality content. We make it available in template form. And then you as a user can kind of put your own identity, your own content, your own messaging into that template. Cool. And then you can go you know, forward with that very quickly, download it and, and publish it. Um, what you get out of our product is a video file. So in, in the browser, and it does work in the browser, that's kind of one of our, you know, for accessibility purposes, it's a lot more to ask that people download native software versus just go to a website. So we've taken the website route. Um, you know, it's something that you can kind of go to, tinker around with, and then when you're ready, we'll render out a, you know, kind of pixel perfect file and you get that file from us. So you, you really take possession of, you know, digital possession of the asset. And then you can go publish it on your channels or whatever. And we don't have any, um, you know, it really is kind of yours free and clear at that cool. point to go and use however you see fit. Well, that's a great analogy. The idea of Squarespace connects with me a lot because I remember using Squarespace to make my first website being like, I can't believe... I'm able to make this when it, before this, it was always so complicated. How in the world, how in the world do you know how to make a website if you're not trained in it? Right. And video editing makes sense as well. If you guys can provide these beautiful templates and take your creative and professional skills in there, but make it more plug and play for the average person like myself, man, I, I totally see the, the appeal to that. So brilliant. How this all, how the cake all ended up coming out is actually pretty damn brilliant. Yeah, it's good. You know, we've, we've definitely, built a product that we are proud of. Certainly, you know, we're always working on improving it. Um, you know, it takes a typical user for us right now, like 15 to 20 minutes to make a quality video. And advertising is still the number one use case, though we are seeing more different use cases beyond advertising, whether that's just like marketing, you know, that's not paid or like recruiting, um, you know, community partnership type stuff. So there's more use cases beyond advertising, but sure. that's still the most common one. Um, you know, 15, 20 minutes is pretty good. It's definitely way easier than lots of other things, but we're always kind of challenging ourselves to say like, could we make that two minutes instead of 20 minutes? Um, but I think that is possible. You know, the, the waterline keeps rising <laughs> all the time. So, you know, what's good enough, uh, Right now, it won't be good enough forever, that's for sure. Well, let me ask you this. Just in terms of you personally keeping your head level, not quitting, you know, the, the first time or the second or third plot twist, how did you navigate that with the pressure you were likely feeling, the uncertainty that you were facing, and, you know, things not going the way you, you thought they would at the beginning? How do you navigate that? Good question. I don't, I don't know that I have an answer. Um, and I certainly would not say I did it, uh, you know, <laughs> flawlessly or anything close to, sure. uh, flawlessly. Um, but you're here, your company's here and you still got a full yeah, head we, of hair. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> we survived certainly, uh, that much is undeniable. Yeah. I, I don't, 
I don't really know. I think I've, I've, I think I've done a decent job of like separating my sense of self-worth as an individual from the outcome of the company, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is, you know, probably good for my mental health. I don't know that my investors necessarily endorse that, uh, <laughs> that separation um, or that investors in general, you know, would endorse that. But I kind of view, I think I view things fundamentally probabilistically, which is to say like, I've always been quite comfortable with the idea that we might fail. Like even going back to the beginning, yeah, uh, you know, I would kind of, I had, uh, I had internalized maybe is the right word or, you know, made some sort of peace with the idea that we're good. We're an underdog. You know, this is like an underdog adventure. And, you know, as such, like people, it's, it's like trite or people, you know, very often say, well, most startups fail. And that's like something everybody kind of knows is true, but you know, much kind of like people don't like to think about death too much. Right. They're like, you know, um, it's, but it's not going to happen to me or, you know, I sort of, you know, pretend it won't. Um, I think, I maybe more than most was like just comfortable with the fact that like there's a decent chance of failure. And so that never really scared me so much. Um, I did genuinely think like, maybe we should shut this thing down. You know, the, the founding premise of the business is, you know, kind of been invalidated. So if ever there's a, you know, a good reason to, um, you know, to kind of give up on the startup, it would be when the founding <laughs> founding premise sure. is, uh, you know, is proven not to work. Um, even though in our case, you know, I, I still think it was a pretty good idea, but you know, just was one that as it turned out, like we were not in a position to be able to, to really develop. So I think that's maybe, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, reluctant to, you know, try to, to give people lessons from my experience that they could apply because, you know, the circumstance is very particular. Um, but, I have always kind of viewed, you know, elite, elite athlete performance is the same way, right? Like you are going to hit, if you're the best shooter of all time, you're going to hit like 40% of your three point attempts. And if you're the best, you know, hitter of all time, you might hit, might get on base, you know, might get a hit 40% of, of the time. So, you know, our odds are probably a little worse than that in the startup game. Um, but if you view yourself as like, kind of, you know, an at-bat out of a larger pool of at-bats, most of which are not going to work. I think it it can kind of help uh, separate, you know, your your own, like, personal, um, you know, self-esteem or sense of self-worth from, you know, the particular outcomes. But I, think I don't that... know. I guess everybody's mileage will certainly vary on that. Yeah, I mean, you're being very modest, which is is fine it's not even about giving advice. It's, it's almost like to me, a case study, right? Like I'm doing a case study right now. Like, Oh, interesting. You went through several very difficult things that would be very easy and even understandable to crumble or to uh, lose yourself, you know, and uh, you haven't done that. And so I'm just more curious, you know, know, most people would say they're afraid of failure. Most people. Yet you don't seem to be that afraid of failure. 
you know? So there's some perspective. You talked about it a little bit, seeing it in the context of it's kind of normal in my uh, startup world, right? Uh, not tying your identity and self-worth so much there, but in some way you made peace with the idea that this might fail. And that's pretty powerful. Yeah, I think so. It certainly helps me sleep well at night, you know, I, which I have kind of always with very few exceptions. I think I've always been able to sleep well, you know, despite whatever kind of wow. uh, stressors have been going. There have been some exceptions. It's not to say zero. Uh, the first time I ever had to fire anybody, I did not sleep well the night before that. <laughs> um, so, you know, this, the stress can definitely have an impact. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely, uh, it's, you know, it's key to, if you can't do the job or if you can't bring energy, you know, to it, or if you're just too stressed out to be effective, then you're kind of automatically losing too. So, yeah. um, yeah. you know, that's again, easier said than maybe internalized, but, um, I guess yeah, I just, you know. I notice even like for me, I love extreme sports. I don't get to do them as much anymore with three kids and a full, you know, a business I run or whatever. But what I learned in extreme sports, whether it was backcountry snowboarding or wakeboarding or whatever we were doing, you were more often injured or in danger from panic than you were from the actual thing you were trying to accomplish. Like the panic made everything worse. It made your timing off. It made you almost lean into the danger instead of away from it subconsciously. Uh, we talked about this on the podcast before, but even this avalanche training we got, they talked about the panic in the avalanche usually killed people more than the avalanche itself because they would make mistakes out of panic. They would assume they knew which way was up and they'd be digging down or they'd be digging sideways because you're disoriented from tumbling. Uh, and then it would sweat like the exertion of trying to get out of the snow quickly would make you sweat. And then the sweat would freeze and you would have hypothermia. And so they talked about like keeping calm was the first thing you had to do. You had to dig out a space in front of your face so that you could breathe. And then you would spit, which is, is really interesting because you would spit hmm. because gravity never lies. So if the spit goes yeah. straight up, well, that means you're straight upside down. Like up is that way. If the spit goes down, well, then you – or sorry, the other way around. Spit goes down, up is that way. The spit goes up, you're upside down. You need to dig this way or if it goes to the side. And they talk about these small calculated tests to figure out which way is up and moving methodically that way without really overexerting yourself because you don't know if you're five feet under or 15 feet under, you know? And I hear the same thing in your story where there are these moments of, man, we kind of just got hit by an avalanche. What do we do? Didn't panic. You didn't rush into this way or that way. You did a two-week test and people responded well, and you're like, okay, I guess we're going to go from there. And you just kept doing these like incremental calm movements towards progress and to me, that's my takeaway is seeing you stay calm. If you know, even if you don't know why you stay calm, <laughs> you found a way to stay calm, to stay level-headed and make smart, calculated decisions over a period of time. Um, would you disagree with that as my assessment? I would say I think that that is broadly true. Certainly, as I think back and, you know, explore some of these memories more, even just <laughs> as we're talking about it, I would you know, I would definitely say I had my moments of freaking out. Pacing. Um, what are we doing here? Good. Uh, yeah. You know, teammates too, that you can really um, yeah. trust, you know, and be, you know, it's not, it's not everybody 
you know, at any given time that uh, should be asked to like bear the kind of burden of, you know, existential problems that a business may be facing. But for me, it's always been critical. And I've had a couple um, different kind of partners in the business over time, but having, you know, at least one person who I can really kind of, you know, confront the negative reality with Mm. um, before figuring out what to do. And it, you know, it's been very helpful for me if that person is, um, you know, can kind of moderate me a bit. Um, Cause I do actually, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of given toward like grand, uh, you know, moves. Like I'm not always the most like uh, incremental or experimental. Sometimes I just yeah, want to like, obviously you're a dreamer. go a different direction. Yeah. Um, but that sometimes needs to be tempered. So I, I've been very fortunate to have uh, a couple different teammates that I've been able to really lean on and who will like understand me and who are not afraid themselves, you know, to face the true reality. Um, but have also kind of brought a little bit of a different temperament where, you know, I think they've helped me kind of act ultimately act like I've been, you know, calm, cool and collected the whole time, even if I, in reality, (laughs) maybe haven't. Um, so that has been really key to me too. I would not, want to, I would never want to find myself in a business where there was, you know, nobody that I could really talk totally frankly to, uh, that relationship can be, you know, a lot of different ways, but, um, I think that's, that's really key to have, you know, at least a small group, uh, you can say like, look, we're up against it. You know, this is the, this is the real talk, uh, challenge that we're, facing. So I've been really fortunate there as well. There's a couple of, uh, of teammates that have really done, I think a phenomenal job in, in that role. I love that. So thinking about the business as it is today, what would you say is the most pressing issue or challenge you're trying to solve or most top of mind? For me right now, I am obsessed with AI. So, Hmm. you know, that is, that may be a source of the, you know, the next kind of crazy thing, or if we can, you know, that may be kind of the giant wave that's, you know, that's kind of uh, emerging off in the distance. But right now I see incredible dynamism in AI. Obviously we've been promised AI for a long time in a lot of different domains. Um, but just in the last, I guess, depending on where you mark the start, you know, last year-ish, um, there have been some real advances in highly general AIs. Mm-hmm. A lot of this has come out of OpenAI. Uh, some of it has come out of Google, uh, DeepMind. They don't release as much as OpenAI does. Microsoft has done, has done some, some cool things too. And of course, you know, lots of companies are working in this area. But the kind of breakthrough, like highly general purpose technology that we see in things like GPT-3 I really believe is going to fundamentally change the way that people create content in the future. Was is um, GPT three? Was that the is that the AI program that like basically wrote a blog article or whatever that you couldn't you couldn't differentiate between a human writing it or not? Yeah. So GPT three is uh, the name of the kind of technology. Open AI is the name of the organization 
Okay. And they also productize GBT3 as an API, which they call the Open AI API. Um, and basically, it, it what's so kind of transformative about it, and it's going to continue to get better. Um, it's you know it's not good at everything by any means yet, but what makes it so powerful is it is text in, text out. So there's not the sort of structure that people typically associate with AIs or with with APIs, I should say. Um, and there's there's also not the narrowness that is typically associated with mm. AIs. It is both highly unstructured and highly general purpose. Um, and that's quite different from most things that have come before it. So under the hood, they call it a large language model. And I'm like a, uh, I'm passionate about this type of technology. I think it's awesome, but I'm not like a true expert. I don't have a PhD in it or anything like that. Uh, but they, they call you know these things large language models. Basically what they do is just crunch huge, huge, huge amounts of data. So they essentially took the entire corpus of everything that's been written and published on the internet, curated that and crunched it through this giant language model. Wow. And conceptually, it's pretty simple. Although you, as you'd imagine, right, there's a lot of engineering that goes into that. Reportedly, just the computing resources needed to do that data crunching cost tens of millions of dollars. Sure. Uh, that's like, you know, the word on the street. I don't think they've published a number, but it was a lot. So, you know, ton of engineering goes into that, but conceptually it's, it's quite simple. Basically it is a text prediction tool. So you give it some text, it predicts what comes next. And then it turns out you can use kind of subtle, like human style cues and it will understand those cues. So for example, you could do like, if you want to have like a Q&A type situation, you could do like Q colon the question, and then you could put A colon, submit that, and it will give you an answer to that question because it kind of knows that like, oh, when I see Q colon something, it, you know, it, it yeah. should be an answer to that question. Um, it's of course, you know, almost for sure not conscious, uh, you know, and, and not exactly <laughs> like saying almost these sorts sure. of sentences to itself. <laughs> Uh, yeah, 99.9% .9 sure it's not <laughs> conscious. Um, but it does still have this like kind of uncanny ability to yeah. to grab onto these patterns. So for us, you know, and I mentioned earlier, like, can we go from a world where it takes 20 minutes to where it takes two minutes to create quality video content? Like the way that I think that's going to happen is to make it an AI-assisted experience. Cool. So you will you know, what I, what I hope will be the case in our product. And I think will start to be the case in lots of different products that you'll, you know, encounter is like less of a, here's our interface, here's our format. You need to, you know, fill in all these blanks and more of kind of an open-ended interaction where you have the opportunity to say what you want. And then the AI, you know, and again, there's, a lot of engineering that can go into this and we'll have to go into it. But the hope is that we'll be able to create a situation where you say what you want in like pretty plain terms. And then we can a few seconds later, give something back to you, a video that actually is what you wanted right now. Will it be perfect? Of course not. Like there, you know, you'll have things you want to change. You, you know, we'll still the anyone can edit part is still going to be pretty important. Sure. Yeah. Um, the AIs are, they're almost never exactly what you want. 
but the difference but they're between, learning and, and they are getting better all the time. Yeah. But the yeah. difference between kind of starting with an empty template and having to fill in every aspect of it versus being able to get maybe, you know, even 80% of the way there or 90% of the way there or 95 or 98% of the way there. I mean, it really can just take so much time out mm. and it can make your experience, I think with our product, you know, even that much more delightful than it is today. So that is, um, you know, in terms of the thing that I am like obsessed about or thinking about the most, uh, that's it right now. Love it. All right, my friend, we're going to ask you our five lightning round questions, and then I'm going to let you get back to your day because I've already kept you for over an hour here. So number one, if you could ingrain one message into your entire organization, what would that message be? Well, I, I mentioned earlier our core value of take nothing for granted. Um, you know, I think that's probably still the number one thing, right? I mean, we have grown our business in a, you know, in a way that we're certainly proud of and, you know, being able to operate ever so slightly profitably is nice. Um, but we're still definitely a startup, you know, it's, it is not, we are not, um, people talk about like the explore exploit trade-off, right? We are not in the phase of just purely exploiting. Like we need to continue to explore. Yeah. We, you know, what, what got us here is not going to be good enough for, the long term, right? So just whether it's, you know, take no customer relationship for granted, take no team member relationship for granted, take no product or technology assumption, you know, or conclusion that we've made in the past uh, for granted. I just think, you know, the the only thing that is going to continue to be a safe bet is like some form of change. So, uh, and that, that can be challenging. You know, people are... Um, you know, it's, it's a truism to say people are resistant to change. I, hopefully at a, at a startup, that's less true. Um, but, you know, over time you start to like, start to stop questioning certain things. And sure. I think taking nothing for granted is, uh, is still the right mindset for us. I love that. All right. Question number two, what is the single best advice you've ever gotten about growing your business? And also what was the worst? Um, I think the best I would probably say is um, from the Ben Horowitz uh, books, you know, his um, hard thing about hard things, I think is, you know, a very good, especially for like a start, if you're, you know, thinking of getting into startup founding, or if you have started, you have founded a, a company, I think there's real wisdom in that. And, you know, basically it's kind of against advice. It's kind of like, just accept the advice is sort of like rather than going and seeking advice from other people on what they would do in your situation, just confront your situation head on with everything you have and make the best decision that you can because nobody knows your situation mm. like you do. And it's, you know, it's, it's easy to kind of, you know, try to make analogies, but analogies just often don't hold. So uh, I would say kind of, you know, distilling that it's like really rely on your own depth of understanding of your situation versus trying to find, you know, the answer, especially to difficult things in, um, you know, in other people's advice. Sure. So, you know, the, the worst advice, um, 
probably kind of a, a collection of things. And I blame myself more than, you know, anybody who's giving me such advice. But when we were raising money, you know, years ago for the first time, um, you know, inevitably in that process, you get a lot of no's, you get a lot of people that sort of sound off with whatever advice comes to mind for them. Um, and I think, you know, we were, and I was just too, uh, I was too quick to listen to that advice and kind of like, like, Oh, that's a good idea. You know, let's try to do that right now. Right. Um, and you know, some of that advice ended up being good. Some of it wasn't so good, but it was probably a mistake to try to react to as much of it as I did. So that's more like, I guess, you know, <laughs> advice for my prior self, uh, than anything. But I, again, like just being too, um, you know, too quick to internalize any feedback. Um, you know, it, there's plenty of feedback out there, but you, you got to be very selective in terms of which uh, elements of, of feedback or advice you're really going to listen to and take action on. Absolutely. Especially with the, like you said, the amount of feedback that's available to us now, like never before. Um, okay. Question number four, what is your current BHAG, your big, hairy, audacious goal for this company? Yeah, it's the AI thing, really. You know, it's it's figuring out a way to make that work. Um, and I think it is going to work. You know, for years, I've been watching the latest stuff that's that's come out, you know, from the AI community. And we've always kind of found, up until fairly recently, that it wasn't quite ready for prime time. It just didn't really work well enough. Like, it wasn't going to, it was going to create more of like a weird experience for our users as opposed yeah. to like a, a wow experience. Um, but I think that has really changed now. It's not yet, you know, the technologies are not yet to the point where they're mature. They're definitely still improving fast. Um, and paradigms are changing. Like I think, you know, take a, a problem like image captioning. I think the state of the art for image captioning has advanced like five times this year already because, you know, that's just the pace that, that these advances are coming. Um, so making that work, you know, what I would hope would be the case um, a few months from now, and I don't know exactly how long it's going to take, but what I would hope would be the case is you'd be able to come to the site, say, you know, in kind of plain language, what you want, and then have us give you a video that answers the call that, you know, answers the challenge that you just gave us. Um, and I think, you know, that would be the kind of next big uh advance that I want to see us take in our product. Cool. All right. Question number five. It's our fun, creative question, a little different than the questions we've been asking so far. So we're going to play back to the future. If you could hop into a DeLorean, you get to go back to your past, but the rule is you're not there to change anything necessarily. You just, you're able to pass along one message out the driver's side window. When would you go back and what message would you pass along to that younger version of yourself? Um, well, in, in the actual Back to the Future, he had the sports uh, results, you know, the almanac that he That's was right. able to uh, feed betting opportunities uh, <laughs> back to himself. There'd be plenty of opportunities to do that. Um, Bitcoin, you know, bought Facebook. More Facebook stock. Yeah, should have yeah. bought some Bitcoin earlier. Um, you know, I think those things are are pretty kind of too obvious, not maybe in the full spirit of the question. Um yeah, it's more so, is there any encouragement you think that younger version of yourself needed or wisdom passed back? You know, it's, 
I think this is another thing that I heard. So it's not even like I didn't hear it, but I didn't maybe appreciate it. And that is just, it's a long journey. You know, if, you, if you're going to found a company, you really are unlikely to get out of it in fewer than five years. You know, you're, you're just not going to do that, you know, unless you catch lightning in a bottle or you right. totally fall so flat that, you know, you end up just kind of wanting to bury the whole thing uh, on your resume. So I think it is just important to keep in mind that it is kind of a, a marathon more than a sprint. Um, I, you know, I, I was probably a little too quick to dive into some things, you know, that kind of two week thing, like in a sense, that's a great story. In a sense though, that was like also years that we all spent trying to figure out how to run Facebook ads, you know, and, yeah. um, and we did not think that through fully. So it's kind of led us to, you know, an interesting place. Um, but I, even though that's true, like I would definitely have encouraged uh, myself to, to really like confront that reality, you know, more directly. Like, is this some, you're like, anytime you put anything in market, you know, it, it could be with you for years. It probably will be. <laughs> so, you know, what, uh, be very careful. I, I'd say about like what you really want to spend years of your life doing. And it's, um, you know, there's no substitute for like a sense of, of mission or, or purpose. We started with one that was strong. We kind of went through a period where we didn't really have one and we've kind of found it again. Um, but it's tough to, to like get through those times when things are kind of challenging and you're kind of like, I'm not a hundred percent sure why I'm doing this. <laughs> so yeah. the one thing you can control is like choosing a problem, you know, a mission, a quest that you're going to go on that genuinely intrinsically motivates you. If you're doing it, you know, for, for anything other than that, like that probably gets exposed over the, you know, over the long course of, uh, of the startup journey. Well said, uh, what a great note to end on, man, Nathan, thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing with us your story. It truly was fascinating. So I'm glad you did not rush through it because there were so many different chapters. Uh, and it's neat to see the perseverance, not just you, you mentioned your team has shown and the ingenuity and the creativity uh, to create what you have today and that the future is equally exciting with AI and every other amazing innovation and dream you all might think of. So I appreciate you being here, my friend, making this time and sharing your wisdom with us. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.